Hi everyone, this is Tiff from the Bible Matters podcast. On Friday, we'll be speaking to Andrew Satch, pastor of Grace Church Greenwich, about a series of talks he's given on Amos. On Friday, we will be talking about the first talk he gave in that series, looking at chapters one to three. It's a really great talk with a surprising ending to say the least. Enjoy listening. you could just sum up what God is like in one word, what word would you choose? What's your God like, someone says. Well, as a Christian, what do you believe God is like? And you're only allowed a one word answer. There's quite a lot of correct answers. You know, this is, it's not just one possible. You could say God is love. It's true. Uh, One John summarizes God's nature as Love, or you could say God is light. There's there's no darkness in Him. There's no shadows in Him. He brings everything into the open, into into truth. God is love. God is light. What if you were to um, choose an animal to say what God is like? God is like a lamb, maybe. Jesus is like a lamb. A lamb. He was sacrificed for us. Um, whose blood means that we can be forgiven in this ultimate sacrifice. Um, God is like a calf. And at this point, some of us are nervous because we were studying in our um, Bible study, we are just about to study in our Bible study on Wednesdays, when the Israelites um, make a golden calf, and they say that this is God, and they worship a golden calf. And God isn't pleased by that. God doesn't want us to make idols in the form of creatures and say, this is God. Or maybe God is a lion. Here's the weird thing. How come it's not okay for God to be a calf, but it is okay for God to be a lion? Um, We're looking at the prophet Amos over the next um, couple of months, and we're going to get into the whole book. But we've called the series The Lion Roars. And you can see why, if you look on the inside of the service sheet down to chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. He doesn't just speak. He doesn't shout. But he roars. And that is the kind of sound made by lions. And if you think I'm reading too much into it, just look down to chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared. The Lord God has spoken. God is a roaring lion. How come it's okay for God to be a lion, but it's not okay for him to be a calf? And actually, this is quite relevant because it wasn't just in the time of the Exodus that people made a statue of a calf to represent God and to worship God. But actually also in the time of Amos. They did the same. We're told in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. I don't know how well you remember. Some of you were in a series on one and two kings. We went through every single king of Israel and Judah, but others of us won't remember that so well. What you need to know about King Jeroboam, well, this is actually King Jeroboam the second. But he walked in the footsteps of his ancestor, King Jeroboam I, 
King James in the first was famous for setting up golden calf shrines. So instead of worshipping the tree god, they'd worship gods shaped like a calf made out of gold. And God was not happy with this, just as he was angry about it in the time of the Exodus. So he was angry about it in the time of Jeroboam I. And then this idolatry has been going on all the way through the years, even until we get to King Jeroboam II. Um, And the people of Israel, they, they kind of made up their own religion, where God is a calf and they worship this calf as if he's God. And that is not okay. And yet here is Amos telling us that God is a lion. Is it just a matter of kind of swapping your animal? You know, I, I choose calf, no wrong animal. I choose lion, yes, right animal. How, I mean, how do you decide what God is like? How do you decide what animal to pick for him or what metaphor to pick for him? And I think this is the point. Um, you don't decide. That's the point of the golden calf, that they wanted to choose what God is like. And God says, no, don't make idols because I tell you what I'm like. And the book of Amos is about God speaking or God roaring and God telling us what he himself thinks he is like. I guess there's probably a difference between um, an idol is, is something that you make yourself and something that you look at as an image. Whereas God's word is something that he says and we listen. A God that we make compared with a God that we hear, that we listen to. And God has had enough of people making gods, and so he speaks. And he speaks to the prophet Amos, and Amos says, the Lord roars. He utters his voice, and all the pastures, the shepherds mourn the top of Carmel, withers. God's had enough of people just sort of making up what he's like. And now he wants to tell us what he's like. Now, it doesn't mean that God is an actual lion. And making a golden lion statue wouldn't be any better than making a golden calf statue. But in words, through this metaphor, God is telling us something about himself when we discover that God is a a lion. Just think in your mind, what, what comes to mind? And I, I don't think, I mean, immediately I think of Metro Goldwyn Mayer, Lion. I don't think it means that God likes cinema, you know, and he introduces, although, in a way, in a way, Amos would make a great movie. Now, I think rather, think David Attenborough, Lion. Um, think the, the greatest animal in the hierarchy, Lion. Think the lion that is not a vegan, a lion that goes hunting. Uh, a lion that stalks his prey and then kills it and then roars. Do you know whether that's kind of part of your image of God? God is love, yes. God is light, yes. God is uh, a lamb, yes. God is a lion. God is frightening. God goes hunting. God kills and he roars about it. Well, God said that might not have featured in your golden calf version of God, but it does describe me. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the ancestor of the golden calf maker, 
son of Jeroash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he says, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The parties of the shepherds mourn the top of Carmel with us. I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, I, in decibels, how much a lion can roar. Much louder than a human being, probably even a human being with a PA system to help. But this lion roars so loudly that you can even hear him from the other side of the known world. So he's roaring from Mount Zion, and they can hear him from the top of Mount Carmel, you know, right the way across the other side of the land. It is a frightening, terrifying cry. And yet probably a cry that brings quite a lot of comfort Because God roars and God prowls around people that we would want him to judge and to punish. Imagine you were to hear today, the Lord roars from Zion against Vladimir Putin. And you think, yes, yes, great. God is going to come and devour Vladimir Putin. Excellent. Uh, The Lord roars against um, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. All of those Christians brutally persecuted in North Korea. And you think, yes. The fact that the Lord is a lion is really good news in a world of injustice and brutality. And God is love, yes. But God is just not going to love Putin around until he's sort of nicer. Um, you need lion as well as lamb. You need a God who is scary enough to devour evil enemies. And that's what you get here. And you see, if you look at the handout, you see there's these seven countries that the Lord roars at. Um, or maybe um, he prowls around. It's quite fun to plot these on a map. And it goes, um, let's see if I can do this in visually for you but it goes something like this you've got uh, Damascus is up on the north for three transgressions of Damascus I will not revoke and then you've got Gaza down here on the coast and then you've got Tyre up here and then you've got Edom down there and then you've got Ammon over here then you've got Moab up there then you've got Judah down here so it's kind of like this it's like sort of it's what lions do, isn't it? It's how lions hunt. They, they roar, but they also prowl, and they encircle, and they stalk. And God is going around the countries of the world at that time, prowling around them, and saying, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. What does this mean? I think God is saying, look, um, if it was a case of just, you know, they'd done one thing wrong, one strike and you're out, you know, I'm merciful. But when it comes to sort of persistent sin, persistent evil, three strikes and you're out. Yeah, I'm not going to brush it under the carpet when it becomes a consistent pattern. If it was three evil things, I couldn't overlook it. And if it's four evil things, I definitely can't overlook it. That's what God is saying. But I wouldn't just turn a blind eye to three. I'm certainly not turning a blind eye for four. 
sins of Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab and Judah. What, what were these sins? What are the things that make God the lion come to hunt and kill and devour? What does he hate so much? And I think we can take great comfort in this. God the lion roars against, prowls around those who oppress his people. Uh, those who are crushing innocent people. He hates that. He notices that. He roars at that. So just look at, with me through the passage. I've given some verse references there. But look at verse 3. The three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing, threshing sledges of iron. Uh, you know how threshing works. You know, you've got wheat mixed with the husk and you want to get the husk off the wheat. What do you do? You just beat it really, really hard until the chaff kind of um, flies up into the air and blows away. So you're kind of beating it, beating it, beating it. Well, that's what they did, but not to the wheat. That's what they did to Gilead, to God's people. They threshed them. They beat them. And now God the lion is on the prowl against them. And you're thinking, yes, justice for Gilead. Or verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. This isn't the uh, the major exile. There's two major exiles in the Old Testament, one to um, Assyria um, and then one to Babylon. Both happened after this. But I think this is more likely some sort of um, raiding party, some sort of in, um, skirmish across the border, and they kidnap people and they take them into slavery. Maybe they traffic them. Um, to Edom. Um, human trafficking, maybe. And God noticed, and he hates it. And it happens, of course, today, doesn't it? Everywhere in, in Europe, even. And God notices, and he roars against it. And he's prowling and hunting. Verse 9, the three transgressions of Tyre and before, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. Well, it sounds like they're just doing the same thing as Gaza did. But then notice the extra bit, verse 9. They delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom, for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. Again, it's a bit of Old Testament history, and I guess we'll come to it eventually in our Genesis story. But Edom, the Edomites are descended from Esau, who is the brother of Jacob. He's the father of the Israelites. So they're kind of first cousins. They're kind of brothers if you go back far enough up the family tree. This is the people that ought to have taken care of you, but instead brutally pursued you. And God noticed, and he roared. And verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because... They have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. It's hard to know what is the most um, devastating or hideous part of verse 13, isn't it? Um, Is it the fact that pregnant women were murdered? 
that's pretty awful. Or is it the rather petty reason why? They ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they may increase their border. You know, just, just for a land grab, terrible atrocities committed. It sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? I don't need to spell out the parallel. But just for the sake of greed for another bit of land bordering yours, appalling atrocities. And God notices, and he roars against them. You see, it's good news that God is a lion as well as a lamb, as well as love. Um, He is angry. He roars. He devours. He's on the prowl. He notices, and he's going to bring consequences. In fact, the consequences each time slightly mix the metaphor for a lion. Wouldn't quite work in a David Attenborough um, documentary. But this lion sends fire, (laughs) verse 4. I'll send a fire on the house of Hazel. Verse 7, I send a fire on the wall of Gaza. Verse 10, I'll send a fire on the wall of Tyre. Verse 12, I'll send a fire on Teman. Verse 14, I'll kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. Um, obviously, humans can do fire. It's the one thing we've got over lions, right? If you're, if you're out in, um, on safari and you get attacked, you know, light a fire and offend the, the lion off. Except that this lion can do fire as well. So good luck. What I love about this chapter is God is against evil. But he's also very even handed about it. He's not partisan about his justice. It's um, it's equitable. It's fair. It's the same for everybody. And chapter 2, verse 1, I, I find it quite a beautiful thing because uh, we discovered... Um, that Edom is the great enemy. So verse chapter 1, verse 6, God had carried off people to Edom. Verse 11, Edom pursued his brother with the sword. So Edom is a baddie. If you're doing goodies and baddies, put Edom in the baddie category. And then now look at chapter 2, verse 1 carefully. The three transgressions of Moab before I will not revoke the punishment because he burnt to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, I think it's an amazing thing. I don't, just let me spell it out for you that Edom is a baddie and Moab puts the boot in and has to get the baddie and God is not okay with that either. It's not like, you know, God has two categories, um, good countries who deserve justice and bad countries and never mind. But God is even noticing unjust things that are done to bad countries. You know, when um, someone in a brutal regime is brutalized, God notices that. Like we saw when we looked at um, last year, Cain and Abel, um, the, most, the first murderer in the Bible, um, Cain. And then God says, I will protect Cain from injustice against Cain. He let even murderers get God's justice, that they can't just be murdered. And you can't just kill Edomites, even though Edom is evil. Um, It's a great reminder, isn't it? If we look at the world politics today and we just take easy sides, good country, bad country, I think we, we easily do that. And, of course, England, good country, always. 
Um, but then the other's bad country. Oh, God will get them. Well, God will get them. Yes. But God is even concerned about evil things done to evil people. He's very even-handed. And then <laughs> I didn't plan this. Um, for a Jubilee weekend. It's slightly awkward, actually, but as I was studying chapter one of Amos, I noticed another theme that God has particularly got it in for corrupt kings. Now, um, as James has already said, I think we're great, very privileged to live in a country where our monarch herself um, fears God. And so this isn't really uh, uh, directed against the United Kingdom. But God is particularly noticing leaders of these evil countries. So chapter 1, verse 5, I'll break the gate bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitants in the Valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. Um, you know, the scepter's like, it's the big ball that you hold. I remember, if you were on the weekend away, if not, do watch those videos. I remember um, David Shaw began with the Armada portrait of Queen Elizabeth I, which is in the Queen's house just just out the window there. If you haven't seen it, go and have a look at it. And it is, it's a great symbol of imperial power. And there is um, Queen Elizabeth I holding a scepter. Um, to, and she's, I think it's like a globe. And she's even pointing to Virginia saying, this was named after me and I'm in charge. You know, it's a very sort of powerful image. The one who holds the scepter, um, that is the one who is the king or the monarch. But in this case, God has it in for the one who holds the scepter in Damascus, or verse 8, I'll cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkenon. Or verse 15, their king shall go into exile, he and his princes. Or chapter 2, verse 3, I'll cut off the ruler from its midst and I will kill all his princes with him. And, and maybe we're just aware that often a, a country does evil things because its ruler is evil. And again, doesn't this sound very contemporary? Because there'll be inhabitants of that country who themselves are kind of victims of the whole thing. And yet the person at the top is the one responsible. And God knows that. And he prowls. And he roars. And he's about to devour. And so this is a really wonderful image, isn't it, for God's people? God the lion, a God big enough to stand up to your enemies. Um, you know, so sometimes um, you meet people who have particularly um, oversized or overaggressive dogs to compensate for their own stature. So you have like a, you know, the tiny little person in the park with the enormous Rottweiler on the lead like that. Um, and that gives them a certain amount of protection, doesn't it? If you, you go um, in the park with your um, little pet lamb and you meet some bullies, um, it's not going to you know, cut it. But you go on the, um, in the park with your pet lion. And of course, God's not a pet lion. God's the ruler, king lion. But the image is the same. If you walk around the dodgy back streets of the world with a lion, you're kind of safe if it's on your side. God the lion. But um, in all the sermons so far, I hope that we're sort of taking comfort and I hope that we're kind of nodding along. I think that's what we're meant to be doing. Yeah, quite right. They, they deserve it. I'm glad that God noticed the, the human trafficking 
the threshing of the people, the, the pregnant women, the, the victims, just for the sake of a land grab. I'm glad God noticed that. And wow, those people have got their comeuppance. They really have. But then there is a, a twist in the, um, in the story. And um, I've deliberately put a particularly unhelpful heading here, which I'm sorry for those who are praying, because I was just talking to um, today's prayers before the service, and they said, we have absolutely no idea what your last point was. And that was kind of the idea, because I didn't want to give away the suspense. So I put a little, um, a little pun on the handouts, the central plank of the argument. Has anyone worked out what the pun might be? Something that Jesus once said about planks. Or moats, yeah, thank you. Philip's got it. So Jesus famously said in the Sermon on the Mount, um, don't judge lest ye be judged. Don't point out the little splinter in your brother's eye. Leandro, you've got a little splinter there. Oh, your eye's not looking very good, Leandro. You've got a little tiny splinter. And not notice the huge plank in your own eye. And it's obviously meant, it's meant to be a sort of comedy image because... You know, somebody who actually had a plank of wood in their eye, you know, you're not going to be able to see very much. But Jesus like, how come is it you can, you can point at, you can nitpick the smallest, smallest problem with somebody else and you don't notice the massive problem with yourself? And Jesus says, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, um, I think that's a fitting verse from Jesus to explain what's going on here, because just as we're nodding along, so Amos's hearers in Israel are nodding along. (laughs) Yeah, Damascus, yeah, get them, God. Yeah, Damascus, we never like Damascus. Gaza, yeah, take them. Tyre, get them. Edom, yeah, they've been our enemies for years. Roar against them, God. Yes, yes, yes. And there's seven countries here. And we've got... Here they are on the sheet. I've, I've coloured them in orange so you can see them, but then the printing ink hasn't come out very well. But Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammonites, Moab, Judah, that's up to seven. And seven is a kind of complete number in the Bible, sort of seven days of creation. In the book of Revelation, seven churches, seven trumpets. So, you know, it's, it's the kind of the whole lot. So you go, we got number seven, brilliant. And then it turns out that there's one more. And we stopped our reading before it just to increase the suspense. And I encoded the hand, the handout for the sake of it to maintain the suspense. And now we can read it. Verse six. For three, for three transgressions of Grace Church Greenwich and for four. That, that's how it hears when they listen to it. These are the people of Israel. And they never liked Gaza or Damascus or Tyre or Edom or the Ammonites or Moab or Judah. And they cheer God on. And the line's been encircling all the way around like this. And then he hits Israel itself. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. In other words, here is oppression of the vulnerable, 
within the church, within God's people. Here are crazy pagan sexual ethics within the church. And God takes this even more seriously than all of the sins of Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab and Judah. Because God's people, they've had so much privilege from God. He's been so good to them. And yet here are God's own people doing things just as wicked as the people on TV that they shake their fists at. It's a danger, isn't it, at the moment? I mean, we are seeing on our TV cameras, you know, daily terrible evils done in the world. And it's right that we think of them as terribly evil and that we want God to judge them. That, that's why right. when Jesus says, don't judge, lest you be judged, he doesn't mean um, God's going to turn a blind eye and so should you. That's often the way people interpret Jesus' words. It's not what he means at all. God is not going to turn a blind eye. But Jesus' point is, but don't be a hypocrite in your desire for justice. As you look at what is terrible that's going on in Ukraine, don't ignore what is terrible that's going on in the United Kingdom. Now, they ripped open pregnant women to enlarge their territory. It's not a reference to abortion, but it could be, couldn't it? Now, how many children do we kill in this country? Even as we're appalled at the military tyranny on our TV screens. Uh, look closer to home, says Amos. Um, and there's abortions in the UK. And then we go even closer to home and we look at the UK church. Uh, the church that's had so much privilege, so much grace from God, so much revelation from God, a church that ought to know that God is not a calf that you make up yourself, but a lion who has words to say, and here they are. Um, as we go through Amos, we'll be seeing various ways in which the church can turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to what God is saying. And God says, don't just notice the speck and ignore the plank. Because you have had so much privilege, you and me have had so much privilege, and it just raises the stakes. And I think sometimes as we put the Bible together, we, we go like this. We go, Old Testament, um, you're in danger of God's judgment. Um, but New Testament, Jesus, thank goodness, it's all fine. Sometimes we go like that. And it isn't quite the way that the Bible puts itself together. Um, Old Testament, Judgment, and yet rescue, mercy, salvation. Uh, New Testament, judgment, and yet mercy, salvation, forgiveness. And yet for those who enjoy the forgiveness, and yet turn a deaf ear to God, who know the grace but presume on it, who are unrepentant, who are hypocrites, Jesus says, or God says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And just look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. 
against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Um, hear this word against you, forgiven, saved, rescued people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Such privilege. You're my people. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, this doesn't mean that God's got it in for everyone in Grace Church Greenwich. I said that partly for shock value. But that is a bit how it would have been heard by Amos's audience. That's the first time he preached it. As he goes around all the other nations around and then suddenly you. And at least we should ask ourselves the question. As I want God's judgment against evil, have I stopped to take away the plank in my own eye? Do, do I think that as one of God's people, it just you know, doesn't count for me that God's a lion? Um, or am I looking um, inwardly at myself, at our church, at our denomination, at our country? And as we so easily divide the, the TV news into the goodies and the baddies to think there is bad here as well. And then does it bring repentance, turning away from evil, turning to the Lord, asking for real forgiveness, which is what all the way through Amos is what he's looking for. Um, the us and them. <laughs> well, don't forget that the lion prowls also around us. How would you sum up God in a word? Well, he is love. I mean, he really is love. He loves his people. That's why he warns us. And he's light. He really is light. There's no shadows. It's partly why Amos is bringing everything out into the open. And he's a lamb. He really is a lamb, the, the one who sacrificed. And in a moment in the, the Lord's Supper, we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us in bread and wine, the, the forgiveness that there is as we trust in him, really. But God's also the lion. He sees everything. He brings justice. And he hates hypocrisy. For three transgressions, he said, I wouldn't turn a blind eye. For four, I really can't. Of Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab and Judah and Israel and the UK and the Church of England and maybe... Grace Church Greenwich. Uh, let's take a moment's silence and then we're going to be led in prayer together. <laughs>